Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Stephanie Boloris. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by senior analyst Abhijit Sunil to discuss his perspective on the recent COP28 conference. Welcome, Abhijit. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Stephanie. So maybe let's just start super high level. Can you just maybe briefly give an overview of COP28 and potentially dive into some of the controversy um, at this conference? Sure. So COP28 is UN's landmark conference on climate action. And this year it was held in Dubai. And we usually have declarations coming out of a conference like this where organizations, countries mostly commit to certain goals and actions. And this year, too, we have a range of declarations that affects organizations of all sizes across the globe. And all of these are geared towards more climate action and keeping the global warming under certain levels. And this year, I mean, we'll we'll get to the results in a moment and talk about what agreements actually came out. But leading up to it, people were really cynical about where it was being held, Dubai. I mean, it's the UAE, so it's one of the largest oil producers in the world. And then also the president of this year's COP was Sultan Al-Jaber, who's actually the head of their national oil oil company. So there was skepticism that anything would come out of this, given how entrenched the country and the president was in, in oil production, in fossil fuels itself. And then as the conference actually unfolded, a lot of climate activists were incredibly frustrated because it seemed like the overall number of lobbyists from the fossil fuel industry actually outnumbered the number of activists and even government representatives that were were at the event. You're right. And although it started out in that vein, I think the overall declarations became somewhat positive towards the end with some positive highlights. And one good thing about this year's COP28 conference being in Dubai was that a lot of organizations had presence in the UAE and they worked out of the UAE for their Middle East and African operations. And that may have contributed to how many corporations could participate in this year's event. In fact, this year we saw a record number of global leaders from corporations, from organizations participate in COP28. Yeah. So you ultimately, you think that was a good thing because you had all these private sector organizations and their leadership there participating and committing to agreements. I think it was a balance and I think it did have its positives being in that region, in Dubai specifically. So maybe we could talk about the actual agreements. I'll be honest, I was one of the skeptics. I was like, oh, this is doomed. (laughs) COP28 is over, (laughs) or, you know, future COPs will be less influential. People will stop thinking about this annual conference as being so critical to climate action. So I was pleasantly surprised in the end as to what was actually achieved. So what were some of the big big agreements? Some key highlights, some key agreements were on, first of all, the declaration cooling. This affected the actions that we, we need to take in the built environment. So how organizations should think about the buildings, building sustainability systems and what actions can we take at a community level as well as at an organization level around building sustainability. The other was the declarations that we had on renewables and energy efficiency. So we, we had declarations to 
increase the amount of renewables and therefore we'll hopefully see more innovation in that area and also doubling the amount of energy efficiency activities across the board. So these will directly have an impact on how organizations, technology leaders even, will make decisions on. A couple of other uh, interesting highlights was the was the emphasis on climate action this uh, this this year that we saw. We saw that there was a declaration of climate relief and recovery and peace, and this will will start more positive conversations around climate adaptation and more funding in that area and how we can think about climate related migrations and policies associated with these uh, with these problems. Then the other positive declaration that we saw that affected enterprises directly was on climate, nature, and people. So that meant that more metrics needed to be now measured around water quality, air quality. In fact, I was happy to see that one of our predictions at Forrester, which was that we'll see at least two unicorns rise up in the water and air quality space yeah. had a dotted line towards that declaration. And I'm looking forward to more innovation in that area and more startups and more investments happening in that space. So a lot of things to unpack there. First was climate adaptation. So the, the big agreement was some of the more developed countries who are the most responsible for where we are currently, you know, they're the biggest emitters of greenhouse gases and they've got to enjoy emitting all these greenhouse gases without the consequences until now. Basically committing resources and financing to developing countries who are going to be the most impacted in the future by a warming a warming climate. That's right. And in fact, associated with that is a word that we have we've we've come to read a lot around just transition. So we not only saw the declaration on renewables, but also about energy efficiency. And associated with all of that was the way in which we should make sure that there's a just transition, which means that organized or countries that are still developing and need to cross certain bridges that developed nations have already crossed will have their fair share of ability to use fuels to bring about that development in their communities. So that was something that we we saw happen across the board as discussions, and I think that's a positive sign. And uh, we'll we we'll have to wait and see how all of this translates into policies. But it at least got a good push in discussions. Because the overall agreement, which again I was skeptical they would ever get here, so I'm pleasantly surprised that it was, and I'm happy to be wrong, was that all. 180 plus countries who participated actually agreed to transition away from fossil fuels by the year 2050. Now, I guess the controversial piece of it was is that there were a couple of um, I guess adjectives that went along with it, in that it had to be in a just, a just, um, and equitable manner. Which some people feel that well, that's the get out of jail free card. Mm-hmm. Which is like as we approach 2050, if we haven't transitioned away, people could be like, well, we. It's because we can't, right? We haven't developed enough renewables yet. And if you look at the developing world, we have no right to tell them they can't burn fossil fuels to achieve the same quality of life that we here in the developed world have enjoyed. So that's going to be the get out of jail free card. It's like it was tacked on to support those countries, but then is it a get out of jail free card? 
it could be one thing that <laughs> we, we actually at Forrester did with a recent survey that it with we did was when we asked organizations about their commitments for carbon footprint reduction as a whole we asked specifically about their 2030 goals and this was to reduce this bias that 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 leaders might tell us when they talk about their commitments for a long term like 2050 and this is the skepticism that's been around some of uh, this, this conversation granted that these efforts need more time investment and efforts including in policy making that are more complex and will need a longer lifespan and longer timeline but at the same time when we ask about shorter milestones that organizations have immediate milestones that are right in front we find in our own surveys at forrester there is a big discrepancy and that's when a lot of organizations tend to take a pragmatic approach and we see a huge difference in when we ask organizations for their 2050 goals versus 2030 goals how for 2030 they take a step back and become more cautious in how they say they do have a carbon footprint reduction plan goal and a, and a, and even budgets associated with it but to be clear the agreement is just for 2050 so there's no like you have to meet certain requirements by 2030 or other other milestones not this year but in future cops mm. they could get more like more finer details finer details yeah. and specifics but Actually, I want to go back to renewables. At COP28, because you had so many countries and their representatives there, you had private sector organizations. There was also a lot of, I don't know, I hate to call them side deals because that makes them sound uh, like It's shady. It's a little shady. shady. <laughs> <laughs> you had countries uh, making their own uh, commitments. Uh, you know, for example, there was a small cadre of uh, countries that have nuclear um, energy that actually committed to increasing i think it's either increasing by 30% or almost like doubling the amount of nuclear energy that they're producing yeah i think 20 plus countries committed to triple their nuclear generation triple. by 20 okay. 2050 and 130 countries committed to tripling the renewable energy capacity by 2030 so which is a more near term goal that we saw out of that and double the rate of energy efficiency improvements to over 4% so the amount of investments that we'll see in energy efficiency activities i think will will increase and we'll need to wait and see how this will translate into actual projects so uh, these renewable energy commitments i think is substantial i think that's that'll be something and as you mentioned earlier stephanie there were a lot of skepticism going into cop28 about this very fact about energy especially because of where it was held etc but i think these were some of the silver linings that actually came out of the final declarations maybe it makes sense actually to dig in a little bit more into sustainability in buildings because you you touched on that a bit and the the efficiency i mean it is interesting i mean you've got big public sector interests obviously in buildings but then in the private sector when you think about corporate headquarters and branches and sales offices and manufacturing facilities you know it doesn't sound meaningful like oh we're going to increase efficiency of buildings and sustainability of buildings but when you think about <laughs> what that actually means that literally affects everyone it does in fact building sustainability is top of mind for almost every industry including the technology sector so as an example data centers account for over 55% of emissions in financial services 
MasterCard, for example, has more than 55% of their emissions coming just from their data centers. And this is their scope one, two, which are direct emissions. That means that not only will they have to address the technology within the data center, but they'll also have to address sustainability associated with the built environment, with the data center construction itself. And so that's just data centers. Then, of, like you mentioned, corporate headquarters, factories, manufacturing facilities. So hospitals. Hospitals. Every single organization who will have a built environment, which is almost everybody, will need to consider some of, this, uh, some of these initiatives, some of these commitments, and how they can address sustainability. In fact, 66 countries committed to the global cooling pledge to cut air conditioning emissions by 68% by 2050 out of, out of COP28. Well, you know what I find amazing about that is, uh, I mean, not to get all pessimistic and down, but you know, the planet is warming. Even if we stopped all emissions today, um, you know, we're still probably going to hit an increase of 2.5 degrees Celsius by the century's end. So things are going to get hotter. And one way that we can adapt, you know, make sure that people are still productive at work, actually come to work, um, is through cooling. So it almost seems that it's a catch-22, which is we need to improve the efficiency and cooling of these buildings and actually spend less energy cooling the buildings. But at the same time, the environment's getting hotter. And cooling is actually the one of the ways that we can actually stay productive like productive and adapt. It is a cash 22, as you rightly put. In fact, especially in in warmer environments, warmer warmer regions, like right. uh, countries that are closer to the equator, this is an increasing problem. And I think we'll see multiple effects of this problem. In fact, one prediction that Forrester made was that we'll see more employees unionized and otherwise demand for accommodations in the workplace to account for environmental environment or heat-related problems. In certain ways, how we are seeing this translated, these pledges translated, is in the energy efficiency itself. So how we are seeing the exploration of heat pumps in buildings and the retrofitting of more efficient systems for cooling and HVAC systems in buildings. And we are seeing this activity at the uh, community level as well with more cities and towns exploring these options for communities within within them and also for organizations who are exploring this in their new built environments. And even the data center example we talked about earlier, we are hearing a lot more from data center builders about how they're exploring innovative systems for cooling. Data centers capture a lot of energy for just their cooling. And for that too, we are hearing a lot of innovations happening, especially in making use of ambient environment by moving data centers to a cooler climate, innovations like that. Actually, there's been huge advances in chips. I feel not only with the rise of AI, but also because of the need to have more efficient data centers. I feel like chips are suddenly competitive again. We used to think of them as just being commodity. Now all of a sudden, new chips designed chips design for more efficiency seem to be um, really top of mind for all of the chip designers as well as the manufacturers themselves. Yes, that's a great point. In fact, with the ad advent of more use cases related to AI, with generative AI, we're seeing a lot more interest in addressing this problem from the very beginning. We're, we're seeing how AI-related workloads are very energy 
uh, energy intensive. So they require a lot more computing power and therefore a lot more energy in the data center to cool themselves. And therefore, that debate on whether AI is helpful for sustainability versus whether it'll be detrimental for sustainability initiatives within the built environment, whether chips will actually require more energy to cool itself and also to just do more computing has been something that's been a healthy debate, I, I think, from the very beginning. So I think we'll see this play out even further, but lots more, lot of, lot more innovation is actually happening and we are seeing semiconductor industry address this in, in various ways, including from the ways in which they are helping their customers understand the various metrics by which they can measure and report the report these sustainability metrics of chips so they can start somewhere in terms of addressing where to, uh, you know, or, or their supply chain. Yeah. Before we move off of the IT topic and the data center topic, one thing about data centers as well, when you think about the, the heating and the cooling, I mean, cooling is primarily done with water. Um, so a typical data center is three to four million gallons of water per day, 40% of which is lost to eva evaporation. So recently you've actually seen some local communities actually push back on new data center builds in their local community. This happened with Meta in Spain. Um, it's happened with several companies in Arizona. It's like, oh, for a little while building a data center in Arizona sounded great. <laughs> All this land. <laughs> um, uh, not a lot of water, though. So there's also the water, the water angle. That's it. right. Water, um, water management and water conservation has been a part of uh, part of the data center equation now more and more so. So just like PUE, which is power usage effectiveness, now we are seeing the rise of water usage effectiveness as a metric that's almost commonplace right now. And this problem of how even large data center operators, uh, you know, public cloud providers and others have to now actually explain the way in which they'll use water, conserve water, and their commitment to water quality to local communities is on the rise. And we're we are observing this at Forrester as well. Interesting. You know, recently at um, Forrester's uh, Tech and Innovation Forum in London, I was talking to several clients about Europe's upcoming uh, corporate sustainability reporting directive. And they had actually told me that they went to several of their cloud providers, and this was specifically SaaS providers, maybe not your typical like hyperscalers, but none of them could actually report back on the client's greenhouse gas emissions, the client's carbon footprint with that provider. They weren't prepared to do it. It is it is a, it is an increasing challenge. And in our recent report on IT sustainability services, one of the key service areas that IT decarbonization service providers told us they were working on with clients is, is around water, is in helping them solve the challenge, helping them measure, and how they can address this over a long period of time. Did they say much about software, though? And like whether, because I, I think obviously like with infrastructure, you can, you can literally see how much water it's consuming, how much power it's consuming. But when it comes to like software and you're trying to figure out the footprint of software you're developing or software that you've hosted or SaaS uh, solutions that you're subscribing to, have they really been able to like figure out how to report on that footprint? This is an interesting point, Stephanie. In fact, this is one of the areas that, are, that, that, that has the least amount of metrics and innovation so far because it is very tough to do. Uh, unlike data centers or end-user devices, 
where some of the metrics are are, are easier, some low-hanging fruits already exist. For example, making data centers more efficient, some of the things we talked about in terms of chips. But in software, the best practices, benchmarks, and KPIs by which we can measure software efficiency, so it's faster, better, and vice versa, is faster, more sustainable, and vice versa. Those are all, all debates that that we are still seeing unfold in the software industry. In fact, one of our clients had recently mentioned that of all the efforts that they put together within their IT stack, within this company, which was in the financial services sector, IT sustainability for their software stack has been the least impactful. That gave them the least ROI. So which is a problem that we need to build, hopefully see more innovations on too. Do you think that that's going to be like a, a question in an RFP, right? When you're getting a new tech or a solution about like, okay, explain to me what the impact of this service or solution is going to be. I, I believe it is. Yeah. And I think it's going, to it's going to catch a lot of people off guard. Yeah. Because at least from what clients have been telling us is even companies that you, vendors and IT providers that you would expect would be able to answer this question mm -hmm. can't right now. Um, like your major enterprise app providers and SaaS providers. Um, I mean, I think the hyperscalers can do it um, when you're talking about core cloud infrastructure services, but when it gets to the software layer, I think everyone's struggling with it. Mm -hmm. uh, Jen, you brought up a good point about like what's next. So, I mean, COP28, we've got a lot of great commitments, but then, so what, what happens at COP29 now? Like, what do we expect for next year? So I think a couple of, a couple of trends that uh, we, we observed out of COP28 is that increase in discussions around climate adaptation. I think this will be accelerated or we'll see more of more discussions around not just uh, not just mitigation but adaptation next year. So that I think will be a trend that we'll observe more and more now. We saw a big push this year and we may see more of that next year. Then the other other few things that we saw as highlights out of COP28, which included renewables and energy efficiency, I think we'll see more of more of those commitments broken down into milestones mm -hmm. and more near-term goals for countries. Now, we began with a good push for energy efficiency, but we discussed right now about IT sustainability and um, sustainability in buildings. I feel we'll see more of that, uh, more of those granular details emerge in the next year. When, then the other thing was about how th this year there were over around 400 organizations from 64 jurisdictions committing to advance the adopt ad adoption of ISSB, climate-related reporting framework. Mm. So I feel we'll see more unification or uh, more of... Uh, single standard that might be helpful for multiple industries, multiple regions to adopt as a framework for measuring and reporting on their carbon emissions. So we saw the TCFT actually folded uh, right. this year at COP28. This is the task force on climate-related financial disclosure. Exactly. But TCFT is not going away. Some of the the ways in which organizations can still report their climate-related risk are baked into some other regulations that are that are happening around the globe. For example, the proposal by the SEC in the in the U.S. So, 
we are seeing more and more how organizations need to address the needs of investors in calculating and reporting their climate risk as it pertains to business risk and also the call towards one unified standard that will help with reporting being answered more and more so i feel by next year we'll see more movement in that direction mm-hmm. for one standard to reign supreme and the interesting thing is that forrester we made this prediction last year for 2023 where we'll see one standard rise as a unified standard that will be adopted across the board and we saw that big push actually happen at cop28 this year so that might be a good place to kind of transition to individual organizations which is you know what do they do next year was this change their priorities change some of their urgencies and what they should be focused on there were some key takeaways for business leaders and technology leaders out of out of cop28 so we discussed a variety of declarations and commitments and what all this means is first of all is that organizations now need to be more proactive in a plan to report climate related metrics and to do that one of the first steps that many organizations need to uh, we need to undertake is to put into place a sustainability monitoring software or environmental monitoring software that will help them to automate data collection and net zero planning or carbon footprint reduction planning and finally metrics reporting into the into some of the climate related uh, reporting frameworks that we just discussed even like including ISSP CSRD that you mentioned earlier is right at the doorstep in Europe and there are many more regulations that are emerging in various regions across the, across the globe and many supplier codes of conduct are mandating reporting into CDP the uh, or setting or setting um, science based targets by organizations and therefore now is the time to take action and look into investing into a unified system that will help automate climate related reporting because i think there's a couple things going on here which is one i f- i feel like you know between consumers and clients and partners and just society at large there's less and less tolerance for companies who have a lot of vagueness about their commitments right so so many have like net zero commitments but it's decades out in the future so i feel like one Yeah, you could have a decades out in the future, but now people want the specifics about exactly how you're going to get there. So it's not going to be um, you know, all um you know, magic. It's just going to magically happen. Like they want to know what your specifics are. To get to those specifics, you're going to need the actual software to really understand what your footprint is and what you can cut and how you're going to cut it. Um because today for the most part what I can tell is that companies are just using spreadsheets they're they're man- literally managing their carbon footprint and their sustainability with spreadsheets and if you're going to be more specific and you're going to make this scale you really need the software that's right and a and a range of offerings are available uh, in fact we are seeing this this market just uh, exploding at this time with a variety of startups addressing different parts of the equation and even consulting firms offering solutions that help with carbon reporting and we will see more of these platforms emerge with more specializations and therefore now is really the time for organizations to move away from manual spreadsheet based carbon accounting 
to put into place a unified system that will help them uh, that will help them report as well as serve as a single source of truth within the company for their data management and this will enable better data governance and help in reducing the amount of errors and assumptions that they need to make in reporting for each cycle as well do you think it'll cut down on greenwashing because there's a number of companies last year that got fined and had their hands in wrist slaps for uh, for greenwashing so it's hard to greenwash if you actually have the data <laughs> i feel there as more and more organizations adopt these software platforms which will then enable them to create better audit practices like most of these software platforms are able to create good workflow management internally and also create audit trails and reports that can be then sent to a third party to audit before they report uh, their uh, carbon emissions some of that will help in reducing the types of greenwashing that will happen from the the scope 1 2 3 emissions calculations and the and what they what they are reporting into but on the other hand in terms of in terms of commitments itself i think now more than ever before there's been there is more awareness about the scope 1 2 3 emissions what what is uh, the percentage of emissions that come from carbon offset purchasing or emissions reduction that an organization might claim from purchasing offsets and uh, renewable energy credits and and so therefore i feel we'll see more scrutiny of companies who commit and uh, who commit to carbon footprint reduction and how they aim to achieve, uh, aim to achieve those commitments abhijit you had mentioned that there's like an explosion of startups in this space so are there a several just like point solutions out in the market or is there like a consolidated platform like how should tech leaders and, and other folks be navigating that space it, that's a good question so in fact we heard from many tech leaders about how they're literally being bombarded with requests by some of these startups on their platforms to provide them with a demo and to uh, to to help them with various areas within that equation of being able to collect sustainability data creating net zero uh, or carbon footprint reduction strategy and analysis using that data and then reporting there are many platforms that aim to do this end to end and in fact at forster we wrote about some of those platforms as well but consulting firms also aim to help with this in fact large organizations especially in in the oil and gas sector retail who have a very complex supply chain they may need the help of consulting partners to penetrate into their supply chain to put into place the right decarbonization levers that will give them good returns on initiatives investments that they'll make so there is, there are a variety of ways in which organizations can seek external help on but one thing is evident that they will need to put together an internal platform that will help them to repeatedly re- repeatedly optimize on the way in which they collect data and report into various frameworks because reporting is inevitable now and i think that's that's something that no leader should ignore and this might be an interesting point to potentially end on which is you know i recently spoke to a client actually he had joined me on stage for a presentation so and this was all about their IT sustainability. Initially, 
they were asked to improve their reporting for not only IT, but for the organization itself because of these regulations, because of the reporting requirements. But what he told me was it very quickly paid for itself, like the investment that they had made in this reporting initiative to put sustainability and safe in place because you know, because of the efficiencies they achieved and the savings they achieved. So it ended up paying for itself like easily. And then from there, they found other opportunities uh, that made themselves made IT better, made the company better, more competitive in that they were more competitive with clients that had be, started to become passionate about sustainability. Um, they started IT itself actually started offering additional services out to other business partners within the organization. Like they helped one group um, improve their climate risk analytics for assessing the kinds of companies that they would invest in. They were able to do that. And then they were actually able to offer some new services to some of their clients um, about their own sustainability footprint as well. So I think the, you know, thou must is just sort of step one, but if you really embrace it and do it well, there's a super good ROI. And then there's also the ability to participate in this whole green market revolution long-term, but you don't get to participate in the green market revolution if you don't do steps one through three. Exactly. In fact, good takeaway out of all this is now's the right time to connect sustainability related activities to business optimization and find ROI in the investments that need to be made into sustainability efforts as well. And it's easier to make now than ever before in both in terms of new products that can be brought into the market and also in the ways in which organizations can find efficiencies. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or drop us a note at podcast at Thanks for listening.